Welcome to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website. That is bigamateurism.com. You can check out my blog as well. You can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email to rich at cagerredux.com. R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is April 15th. 15th, 2022, and there's a little serendipity involved in the timing of this episode because I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about a nonprofit organization that does not pay any federal taxes. And the name of that organization is Lead One Association. And the reason that Lead One is on my radar screen today is that the day before yesterday, the CEO of Lead One, Tom McMillan, who I'm going to talk a little bit more about here in a second, he appeared at a forum discussion held by the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, which is a national association devoted to promoting academic freedom and informing governing boards at the institutional level of issues of importance that they should be thinking about in their decision-making and their policy-making. And the name of the forum was Name, Image, and Likeness, What It Means for College Governing Boards. Great topic, important topic, because a lot of the governance issues that have been at the national level and now are down at the divisional level have been sent down to the institutional level. And that was really the product of Mark Emmert's name, image, and likeness dump on June 30th, a day before the state laws went into effect on July 1st. And he lost his campaign in the Senate for a federal bailout. They got hit with the Austin suit. I think they had a dormant commerce clause lawsuit teed up, ready to go. But I think the Austin decision took the wind out of that sale. And then Emmert had no other alternative but to put together this ridiculous interim policy. And then he just dumped all his nil garbage at the feet of the institutions. And the institutions had to come up with name, image, and likeness policies and then try to navigate these uh, uncharted waters on the fly without any notice. So if you are a Power 5 member institution in the NCAA system, and you all of a sudden are faced with having to do for yourself what you thought the NCAA was going to do for you, which is to put together a coherent policy and do some intelligent rules making on name, image, and likeness, uh, you've got to figure out what this is all about and really understand these issues because, as we know, there never was any rulemaking. And the NCAA hasn't altered a single word of a single rule that relates to their prohibitions on name, image, and likeness compensation that are set forth in bylaw 12.5. So instead of doing what it promised to do three years ago, which was to actually make sensible, well-considered name, image, and likeness rules changes, the NCAA and Mark Emmert uh, came up with this last-minute interim policy, which again is a policy. It is not a rules change, which essentially said, we're going to just tread water on this name, image, and likeness issue until we can get a federal bailout. That's essentially what it said. It also threw in some suggestion that it might continue with voluntary rules-making on no. That's not going to happen. Uh, they had that chance. That ship has sailed, and they are now full-court press with a federal bailout 
that would essentially federalize the name, image, and likeness market and take states completely out of the regulatory field. That's essentially what this interim policy amounts to. And I've talked quite a bit about that, that this whole name, image, and likeness debate has been a Trojan horse for the NCAA's campaign to eliminate the athletes' rights movement through a combination of federal protections and immunities that include federal preemption of any state law that interferes with any NCAA rule, a compensation limit, or regulatory authority, absolute antitrust immunity, which would eliminate federal courts as external regulators in college sports, and then provisions that say that athletes can't be deemed employees. And that one, two, three blitzkrieg would have eliminated states, federal courts, and the NLRB, or any federal agency responsible for overseeing the rights of employees, would have been taken completely off the table, and then the athletes' rights movement is over, game, set, match. And in the post-Austin, post-nil debacle, post-transfer world, the NCAA and the Power Five and all of their satellite minions who have vested interest in preserving the old status quo or restoring the old status quo, they have been working double time to create pathways to go back to Congress to get the very things that they didn't get starting with their campaign in 2019. This is just repackaging the same draconian federal protections and immunities and different clothing, and then coming in as if this is an entirely new idea. And they have been floating, I think, some trial balloons on what their re-engagement philosophy and campaign is going to look like because all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who want to turn the clock back to the pre-Austin world, really they want to turn the clock back to the 1950s, they have a real dilemma here because when they were gearing up for their blitzkrieg assault in the United States Senate beginning in 2019, under the banner of name, image, and likeness, they came out and said outright, this federal and state legislation working group, an NCAA working group who was supposedly looking into name, image, and likeness, they came out and said, look, we cannot do any rulemaking on name, image, and likeness. We can't offer any meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation until we get these three protections and immunities. And that market simply can't exist because if we don't get those protections and immunities, college sports as we knew them will come to a fatal collapse. Same BS, same sky is falling tactics. But here's the problem for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the NCAA, the Power Five, and all these satellite advocates like Lead One. The problem is that they need a new justification to go to Congress because guess what? Name, image, and likeness came into existence in a far less structured and restrictive way than the NCAA ever intended. And guess what? The sky didn't fall. The sun rose. The birds chirped. On July 1st of 2021, and Power Five conference schools didn't shut down their athletics departments. The games went on. The games went on. And they continue to go on. And that's a real problem for the NCAA and the Power Five right now. They have to come up with an entirely new justification for re-engaging Congress. It cannot be now. They cannot argue with a straight face that 
the existence of a nil market without these federal protections and immunities will destroy college sports. They're still trying to resurrect some of those fears, but the longer this market is in place and the more it evolves and the more that free market principles shape it in a way that make it just a staple of the college sports business model going forward, the less persuasive the NCAA's case is for congressional intervention. So what are they doing right now? They are working round the clock through their lawyers and lobbyists. And as I said in the last episode, lawyers and lobbyists are running college sports right now. They are deciding what this strategy should be to restore the business model to what it was before Austin, nil, and transfer. That's the long and short of it. How do you do that? That's a real challenge. And Tom McMillan, who is an advocate for ground zero big-time college sports interest, used this forum as an opportunity to advocate. I don't believe he was there to inform. I believe he was there to persuade. And the goal of his persuasion was to scare these trustees and governing board members into believing that the only pathway out of this out-of-control name, image, uh, and likeness market, this Wild West market, is congressional intervention, a federal bailout that would restore the NCAA as the unchallengeable regulator in big-time college sports. They would sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation and not be subject to any second-guessing or any questioning because there's no pathway that has any teeth that would allow the NCAA's authority to be challenged. And that was precisely the purpose of this campaign in the Senate from the very beginning. And it was for that very reason that the NCAA appealed the Austin case. They wanted absolute antitrust immunity because their belief was that the NCAA and only the NCAA should sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. And they have always believed that. And as I said in the very first episode of this podcast, the real issue here isn't necessarily whether athletes get paid. I I argue that they are already getting paid because the athletic scholarship is a form of outright pay for play. But really, who gets to decide? Who gets to control the regulatory market? And we can talk about all these compensation issues that are nibbling around the edges of the big-time college sports business model, but really haven't had a profound effect on it, at least not yet. But The truth of the matter is what the NCAA and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the Power Five, what they want is iron-fisted control over the marketplace, both financially and at the regulatory level, because they don't want anybody telling them how to run their business or coming in and interfering with their revenue streams. This is about who gets to decide. And when the NCAA announced that it was appealing the district court decision in Austin to the Ninth Circuit and then ultimately up to the Supreme Court, the justification that they offered through statements and comments from Donald Remy, who was leading the charge on their legal strategy, what he was saying is that, look, we should have the ability, we should have the ample latitude, language from the dicta from the 1984 Board of Regents decision, to 
make decisions at the regulatory level in college sports without any outside interference because we are the sacred guardians of amateurism. And from a legal standpoint, their quest for antitrust immunity to eliminate federal courts as external regulators was the real reason for that appeal. And I I think Remy essentially conceded that in the way that he structured the justification for the appeal. But the NCAA's trying to get right back there. They lost on antitrust immunity in the United States Supreme Court. They can still get it from Congress, but preemption is really the thing they want right now, and that's the thing that's the hottest issue on the table when it comes to having iron-fisted control over the name, image, and likeness market. And that's exactly what Tom McMillan was advocating. And he had a sidekick there I'm going I'm to talk about. It was an interesting forum. So what I want to do, I guess, before I talk about what happened in the forum itself, I want to give a little background on McMillan and also this Lead One Association. So McMillan is a very accomplished man. He has an incredible resume, and he was an All-American basketball player at the University of Maryland in the early 1970s. He was on the 72 Olympic team that got screwed out of a gold medal, and I'm still pissed off about that. I have no idea how McMillan and his teammates must feel. But he then became a Rhodes Scholar. He, he, he got a Rhodes Scholarship, and then he had a very successful NBA career. And then he came back to uh, D.C. and got involved in politics. He served in the House for, I think, one term in the early 90s. And this was on the backside of Board of Regents. And we had this really unstructured football marketplace. And I've talked quite a bit about that as well. And there was a lot of discussion about whether they could put the genie back in the bottle post-Board of Regents and try to stabilize this seemingly out-of-control college football marketplace. And uh, McMillan introduced a bill which would have granted the NCAA an antitrust immunity that I believe would have been broad enough to try to give the NCAA the ability to wrest back control some of the football market that that it lost in that Board of Regents decision. And uh, McMillan stayed in the D.C. area, and he was an influential spokesperson on college sports issues. And then in 2015, he joined this Lead One Association, and uh, he serves as essentially its CEO. Lead One is a trade association for big-time college sports athletics directors, and Lead One promotes their interest. That's the purpose of this organization. And high-level Division I athletics directors, particularly those in the Power Five, are feasting from the gravy train that has been produced from the labors of big-time football and big-time men's basketball. They are the direct and primary beneficiaries of this distorted illegal market, which caps the wages of the laborers. And that's essentially what a unanimous Supreme Court said in Austin. So these big-time athletics directors are among the chief beneficiaries of this distorted, dishonest, immoral business model. And Tom McMillan is the public face of that organization. And McMillan has developed important inroads in the quarters of power inside the Beltway. He stayed in D.C. and he's well-respected and he's a very smart guy. And he's been around the block. He understands how the game is played. And he is promoting the interests of the beneficiaries of the big-time college sports sweepstakes. And the salaries that these athletics directors are getting are just indefensible. 
you have these people who are really influencing policy at the institutional level. And university presidents and governing boards, I think, are largely deferential to these powerful athletics directors, and they rely on their judgment and their business acumen and their value system. And they are operating, these ADs are operating from a Texas-sized conflict of interest when it comes to upholding the the values and integrity of higher education, the institutional values, and the quote-unquote integrity of college sports, which in my judgment right now means only that we preserve the compensation limits and the status quo. That's how it played out. The integrity of college sports in those hearings in 2020 in the Senate, it was about preserving the gravy trains for the NCAA and the Power Five. And Tom McMillan is a chief spokesperson on behalf of these athletics directors to keep the gravy train moving and to keep that trough just chock full of cash. That's the goal of these athletics directors. But I want to talk just a little bit about Lead One and how it's formed. And I guess I should just say this too. I plan on doing uh, dedicated episodes, probably, this is probably a two episode job on Lead One and the influence of athletics directors and how they have shaped narratives throughout this perfect storm. And uh, a perfect example of that was this campaign in June of 2020 that ran through uh, Bubba Cunningham, the AD at UNC, and Kevin White, who was then the AD at Duke. He's, he's no longer at Duke. But the Cunningham and White were both taking positions that I viewed as hostile to name, image, and likeness. And they opposed the Uniform Law Commission's efforts to put together a uniform name, image, and likeness law. And Cunningham did that, I think, in conjunction with Harvey Perlman, who I've talked quite a bit about, and he was the chancellor at Nebraska. He's been a mover and shaker behind the scenes in promoting big-time football interest. He's testified in, in Congress. He's everywhere. Perlman's everywhere. He sat on that Uniform Law Commission committee that was looking at name, image, and likeness. But Lead One and Cunningham and White, and I don't know the extent to which Perlman may have been involved in actually formulating this concept, but they put together what's called the Displacement placement theory. And this thing was just manufactured out of whole cloth. In my judgment, it's a bastardized version of the collegiate model. And it assumed in the name, image, and likeness context that there was a zero-sum market where there was a fixed amount of money out in that nil marketplace and that every penny that might go to a star quarterback at a big-time football school or a star point guard at a big-time basketball school was money that was going to be taken directly out of the pockets of non-revenue and quote-unquote Olympic sport athletes with an emphasis on female athletes to bring in the Title IX issue. It was divisive as hell and it had a very uncomfortable racial connotations because just like the collegiate model, this displacement theory is built upon the assumption that we take money from football, men's basketball, where the laborers are overwhelmingly African-American and we send it downstream to beneficiaries who are overwhelmingly white. And anything that interferes with that model is an existential threat to the fundamental business model of big-time college sports. And it is a horrible model. It is an immoral model. And it is a racially exploitative 
model. And uh, Macmillan repurposed that displacement theory and referenced it explicitly in this forum. And I'll, I'll get to that when I talk about his comments. But I want to just point out that Lead One is organized as a nonprofit under uh, 501C of the IRS code. And there's an important caveat to this. A lot of people think that all these nonprofits operating in college sports are, are 501C3 organizations hanging their nonprofit hat on the peg of education. And that's true for the NCAA. It's true for the member institutions. It's true for the conference entities like the Power Five conference entities, which are separate legal entities from the rest of the business actors. And they are freestanding 501c3 nonprofits. Lead One is a 503c6 nonprofit. And that is important because it has a different purpose. It has some flexibility in terms of advocacy and lobbying that a 501c3 would not and the political activity lobbying disclosures for a 501c6 are much more limited as compared to a 501c3 organization, which uh, is really not supposed to be in the lobbying business, but that certainly hasn't stopped the NCAA or the conferences or the individual institutions. So I just want to just read to you how the IRS talks about these types of nonprofits. And this is hot off the press from the IRS. And again, today's tax day. So as you're writing out that check, I want you to be thinking about where that money's going. And more importantly, what's not coming in. And what's not coming in are taxes from business entities just like Lead One Association. So the IRS calls these types of nonprofits business leagues. And it says section 501c6 of the Internal Revenue Code provides for the exemption of business leagues, chambers of commerce, real estate boards, boards of trade, which are not organized for profit. And uh, then it says an organization that otherwise qualifies for exemption under IRS code 501c6 will not be disqualified merely because it engages in some political activity. In addition, the organization may engage in lobbying that is germane to accomplishing its exempt purpose without jeopardizing its exemption. And then it goes on to say, however, if the organization engages in political or lobbying activities, it may need to give members notice of dues used for such activities or be subject to a proxy tax on the amount of expenditures. And they define trade associations and professional associations associations as uh, business leagues. To be exempt, the business league's activities must be devoted to improving business conditions of one or more lines of business as distinguished from performing particular services for individual purposes. And then they close it out. Chambers of commerce and boards of trade are organizations of the same general type as business leagues. They direct their efforts at promoting the common economic interest of all commercial enterprises in a trade or community. So this is a very interesting animal. And I just want to go now to the uh, Lead One's Form 990 tax return, the most recent one available on the IRS site, which was for 2019. And on all these Form 990s, the nonprofit has to provide a brief description of its nonprofit purpose. What are you doing with this nonprofit designation through which you are relieved of any federal tax liability? So here's what Lead One 
says to sponsor college athletics on a national level serving the group's information and community needs. Now, I don't know what that means to you. I had a little whiskey tango foxtrot moment when I first read that, and I'm looking at that, and I'm trying to figure out, what what the hell does that even mean? It's vague to the point of obscurity, and it really doesn't tell you much about the group. And again, I'll get into all this in more detail in in other episodes, but there are uh, 131 athletics directors that are members of Lead One. And it appears that Lead One's primary source of revenue are dues that are paid by the members. And looking at the amount that came in in dues and then the number of athletics directors, it looks like the membership dues are on the order of ten to $15,000 a year. That's meaningful money. And I want to talk a little bit about who these athletics directors are because the value system of these athletics directors is driven by income protection, status quo protection. And it is not an athlete's rights advocacy organization. They throw in the usual garbage about whatever they're doing is in the name of student athletes, the same crap that the NCAA serves up. But the fact of the matter is that this is just another group of very well-off white men trying to preserve their gravy train. And I just note with the appropriate irony that There are a few things that uh, Lead One pumps on its website that relate to diversity, inclusion, and equity, and all the same happy malarkey that we get from the NCAA. So let's look at at what the demographic profile is of these 131 athletics directors. And let's see, there are 121 men, 92%. There are 10 women, 8%. There are 17 African Americans, 13%. 112 are white, 85%. And there's one Asian. By race and gender, here's how it breaks down. White men, 104 or 80%. White women, 8 or 6%. Black men, 15, 12%. Black women, 2 1%. Asian American men, there's one, a half a percent, uh, really, and no Asian women. That is an embarrassing demographic. This is an overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male membership. And you have to believe that the value system is shaped by those demographics. And that's certainly a built-in primary assumption of the equity, diversity, and inclusion movement at the institutional level. So all these institutions are pumping equity, inclusion, and diversity. And the composition of this group of the most powerful athletics directors in college sports makes a mockery of that. And then Lead One also has a group of quote-unquote partners. There are 20 companies, private companies, that have partnered with Lead One. It's not quite clear what the nature of the partnership is or whether there is any advertising revenue payments that are made. It's just not clear there. But the categories of business entities is very, very interesting. And you have to believe that the association, Lead One, would not affiliate or partner with any business entity that does not align with the basic philosophies of Lead One. I think that's a fair assumption and of particular importance in these partnerships with respect to what McMillan had to say at this forum is that Lead One has partnered 
with two of the biggest sports betting companies in the world. One is Genius Sports, and I talked about Genius Sports in some detail in episode 105 titled uh, Wanna Bet? The NCAA's U-Turn on College Sports Betting, so you can check that out. And I'm going to be going into this in a little more detail when I talk about Lead One in these other episodes. But the sports betting industry is being normalized, and it's being normalized in part because of the very partnerships that Lead One has with these two gambling outfits. So the NCAA entered into a contract with Genius Sports in 2018 a 10-year contract. And in that episode 105, I talked about comments from David Levy, who is the CEO of Genius Sports. And he said that the purpose of that long-term contract was uh, to anticipate the normalization of sports betting in college athletics. And the NCAA wants to be on the cutting edge of that. And so this company gathers data that is then sold to sports books and casinos to try to make the betting lines more accurate. That's essentially what, what they do. This same organization entered into a contract with a mid-American conference whose athletics directors are members of Lead One. And under that contract with Mac, Genius is outright using that data for sports betting purposes. And we haven't heard boo from the NCAA or from Tom McMillan or from any of these other athletics directors about how horrible it is that we are now openly engaging in business relationships with the gambling industry. And then the other entity is a company called Intain. And on the Lead One website, you can click on all of these partners and you get us a brief description of uh, what they do. And here's what Intain says. It says, Intain PLC is the FTSE 100 company that is one of the world's largest sports betting and gaming groups operating in the online and retail sector. Via our unique proprietary technology platform, we offer sports betting, casino, poker, and bingo online and operate some of the industry's most iconic brands, including Ladbrokers, Corral, BetMGM, BWIN, SportingBet, Eurobet, Party Poker, Party Casino, Gala and Foxy Bingo. <laughs> you gotta love that. Foxy Bingo. I want to play that game. And it goes on to say, in December 2020, we rebranded our group from GVC Holdings to reflect our ambition to be the world leader in sports betting and gaming entertainment. We are licensed and operate in more than 20 countries across five continents around the globe. And as I discussed in that episode 105, all of this normalization of the betting industry and bringing it into the college sports business model is done in the face of NCAA propaganda that is adamantly opposed to any involvement in any way, shape, or form with any actor in the gambling space. And that would include Genius Sports. This contract that the NCAA has with Genius Sports is just an outright hypocrisy. And the same is true with the way that the conferences are now trying to insinuate themselves into the, the sports betting industry in partnerships with entities just like Genius and Intain, who are partners with Lead One. Then the, the other thing that Lead One does is it publishes quote unquote white papers, policy position statements on various issues in college sports. And again, I'm going to go through all of that material when I do separate episodes on Lead One. But I wanted to just pull out their market study on sports betting because of the way that McMillan invoked sports betting as a terrible, horrible thing to these trustees in the ACTA. He's saying sports betting 
is the thing that's going to kill us here. And we have to nip this in the bud. And I'm going to talk about why I think uh, McMillan took that approach. But that just flies in the face of Lead One's tacit acknowledgement of the influence of sports betting and the sports betting industry because of its partnerships. But also this paper that it did in September of 2018 and it's called a market study, uh, and it's on sports betting. And remember, this is 2018, and a lot's changed on sports betting in the last four years, including the NCAA's partnership with Genius Sports, the MAC deal, and then also the Kaplan-Dresser Gender Equity Report that looked at sports betting as a potential revenue stream to enhance the profitability of the women's basketball tournament, Division One women's basketball tournament. So they, they did some polling here. It doesn't look like it's super sophisticated. And there were some questions about uh, whether the lead one schools would accept sponsorship money from gaming interests. And uh, only 20% in 2018 said that they would. And then McMillan includes a couple of bullet points that provide quotes from the lead one members. And the first one is open to partnering with a casino, but would focus on branding the casinos like a resort by focusing on dining and entertainment. So yeah, we can go into the business. We just have to take the shine out of that, out of that sports betting thing. And then the second bullet point, and I just love this, hesitation to partner with a sports book, but quote, would be hard to turn down any major revenue opportunity. Hard indeed. And that's exactly where this train is headed. We're heading to this massive, massive untapped revenue stream, a multi-billion dollar industry that the NCAA and the Power Five and all of these Power Five institutions can use to just bring a, a pipeline of cash in. And they're going to do it. There's no question they're going to do it. And Lead One is part of this normalization process through studies like this, through their partnerships. But for public consumption, when they get out into a forum like this, sports betting becomes the singular threat to the integrity of college sports. You just can't make this stuff up. And then just one other tidbit from a policy statement that Lead One released in November of 2021, right after the NLRB's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued her policy statement, her interpretation, saying that college athletes are indeed employees for purposes of the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act. And so they uh, issued this statement. Let's see what this is called. It says, Lead One survey reveals strong majority of FBS athletics directors believe employment status of college athletes would impact funding of non-revenue sports. And we're back to this displacement theory. This is the kind of the repurposed re uh, displacement theory that if money goes to the people who actually earn it, like the revenue-producing athletes, then it's going to mean the death of non-revenue sports and Olympic sports, which I've talked so much about in analyzing the collegiate model. But so they surveyed these FPS athletics directors. And surprise, surprise, by an overwhelming a majority, 90% just think this is a horrible thing. And after reporting the survey numbers, McMillan gives a quote and he says, in fact, the financial model in college sports is unique given that football and basketball subsidize all of the other sports in our athletics departments. If more resources were directed towards football and basketball because college athletes have been classified as employees, other sports would inevitably suffer. 
If these other sports are cut, our U.S. Olympic effort will be damaged as the majority of U.S. Olympians were sourced from our colleges and universities. In the summer 2020 games, 75% of the U.S. national team competed in college before participating in the Olympic Games. That is NCAA propaganda. And I've talked about how the NCAA just splashed the Olympic sports on its website during the uh, Summer Olympics in Tokyo. And then they even tried to do that with winter sports. But uh, this is just another bastardized version of Miles Brandt's collegiate model. But what's interesting about the way that uh, McMillan puts this and the language that he used, and this is purposeful, this wasn't an off the cuff statement. But when he says, if more resources were were directed towards football and basketball because college athletes have been classified as employees. The way that's phrased, it suggests that the money originated from some other source and it's being diverted to football and men's basketball when the opposite is the case. In fact, the money originates with the football and men's basketball players and then gets redirected down to overwhelmingly white downstream beneficiaries. And that characterization like so many of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries' characterizations of the true business model, makes it appear as if these football and basketball players are just takers, takers, takers. They're greedy, and it delegitimizes them because it refuses to acknowledge the value of their services, and it makes it appear as if people other than them have a, a greater entitlement to that money than they do. The earners aren't the ones who have any entitlement to it. It's the downstream beneficiaries, and they just have that upside down and inside out. And it's the same garbage that Linda Livingstone was serving up to the House of Representatives on September 30th of 2021, when uh, she used her bastardized version of the collegiate model to make it appear as if the downstream beneficiaries of football and basketball revenue would be victims if they didn't have access to that revenue and didn't have priority over that revenue. And that position is indefensible. It makes uh, a mockery of the true business model, turns it upside down and inside out, and it is immoral. It is wrong because neither McMillan nor Livingstone or any of the other people who have pumped this propaganda, Rebecca Blank did it in, in her testimony, and we've heard it from congressional leaders on the Republican side, both in the Senate and the House, that this is the business model and it has to be this way because if we don't take this revenue from these black laborers and send it downstream to white beneficiaries, then gosh, it's going to be a, a, a real problem for our Olympic development movement or these non-revenue sports are just going to disappear. And all that's built around this ridiculous implied limitation of the collegiate model that these athletics departments have to be fully self-sustaining. And, and again, I, I've talked quite a bit about that. But that's the propaganda that you're getting from Lead One and from the athletics directors who are directly benefiting financially, enormously benefiting financially from this dysfunctional, immoral business model. And, and I guess to that point, I also want to note again with some irony that the this organization, the ACTA, is premised on fundamental American freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of thinking, freedom of speech, and it, it's challenging institutions of higher education to take those things seriously. And I think that's an important message because I think that we have lost our way in terms of what's acceptable debate in higher education. 
But what's so ironic about Macmillan's comments in, in this forum and his advocacy for congress congressional intervention and his silent advocacy for that uh, intervention to occur after the midterm elections, he doesn't come out and say that, but that's what he really means. That it's going to take a while to get what we need from Congress, which means we want the Republicans to retake control of the Senate. Maybe they get the House. And if we have to wait for a Republican president to sign the bill, that's what we'll do. But it's coming and it's all going to run through these Republican senators. That's the truth of what the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are doing with their congressional campaign and how they're thinking about it. But in this forum that uh, is sponsored by an institution that's committed to fundamental American liberties and freedoms, we have Macmillan making the case for congressional intervention that will prevent the very liberties that this country was built upon and which this organization, ACTA, is actively promoting. And the irony of that is just breathtaking. And then, of course, I've noted this uh, before, but it's important to uh, reemphasize the Republicans in the Senate who are carrying the water for the NCAA in 2020 into 2021 and will be carrying their water if the Republicans regain control of the Senate. And it's going to be even a bigger problem if the Republicans uh, take the House as well. But those Republicans were free markets, open and free markets people. They were states' rights people, yet they were actively promoting legislation that you would think would have come from Bernie Sanders, not from Lindsey Graham or Lamar Alexander, or Roger Wicker, or Marco Rubio. So all these states' rights, free markets people were advocating for the federalization of the college sports marketplace, and they wanted to eliminate the free markets. They wanted to prevent these athletes from going out into the market and bringing what their talent should bear in an open and free market. And that is just un-American as it can be. So now let's look at this, this forum and the panel. And Let's start with Macmillan. So Macmillan, among the many things he's done in his very accomplished career, is that he served on the University of Maryland Board of Trustees. So he ha that's an important experience and the most relevant experience for the ostensible purpose of this forum. But I think when you look at what he had to say, he was pumping lead one big-time athletics director propaganda more than he was trying to inform these trustees based on his experience at the University of Maryland. And it was an interesting presentation, the way he presented himself, because he didn't talk about lead one. He didn't talk about his relationship to the athletics directors. And again, it's one of these situations with these people who wear multiple hats, and then they come in and just conveniently take one hat off or, and, and, and put another one on. It's just difficult to do. So I don't think that Tom McMillan could be sitting there solely in his capacity as a former trustee of the University of Maryland and not be influenced by his, his main job, which is to advocate for the economic interests of the most powerful athletics directors in America. I mean, how do you separate those out? And if you don't put that on the table and talk about the relationship in those two roles that he has had, I think you got a problem. And then when you look at what he actually said, it was a stump speech for congressional intervention. It was all the sky is falling and all these horrible things are going to happen. And that is uh, Power Five athletics directors propaganda, not uh, board of trustees propaganda necessarily. Could be. 
but not necessarily. And then along with McMillan, you had Michael Shu, who has been involved in athletes' rights, and he filed a charge on behalf of revenue-producing athletes with the National Labor Relations Board. And he accepted Jennifer Abruzzo's invitation to get something moving through that pathway. But importantly, for the purposes of this forum, he also was a trustee in the university, actually a regent in the University of Minnesota system. And they have a a regent system. But he has experience in how those governing boards think about college sports. And when he and McMillan were were speaking on those terms, it was a a great debate. And I I wish that that had been the focus from the beginning. But McMillan took the helm and, and he spoke first and he set the narrative. And the narrative, in my judgment, was open propaganda for federal intervention that would protect the financial interests of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, including the athletics directors that he is paid to represent. And then we had a third person named Lyle Adams, and he's a, a younger guy, and he is involved in the nil space, and he has a name, image, and likeness company. There's a whole cottage industry now, and I'm going to talk about that too, because that has some some interesting components and some tensions between you know, these companies sucking up to the institutional interests and, and spouting the party line for them to try to get their business versus promoting athletes' interests. And that's a difficult line to, to walk. And I don't know if there's a way to reconcile that tension, but that's probably an, another episode. So Adams is an entrepreneur and he's taking full advantage of his freedoms as an American in a, a, an open and free society and an open and free economy to participate in this new marketplace. And the name of his company is Spry. And what's interesting about that is that Spry is, wait for it, wait for it, a partner with Lead One. So they are associated at the philosophical level, at the business level. And again, I don't know if there's an economic relationship there. There could be for advertising because all these partners are splashed on the Lead One website. So who knows? Who knows? And they all want access to these powerful athletics directors. Who wouldn't if you're in that space? So, you know, it's a nice, a nice partnership. But his voice isn't necessarily independent from Tom McMillan's, but it was presented that way. At least that's how I processed it. And I'm not sure, honestly, how much he had to add in speaking directly to these trustees. I think that McMillan and Shu have experience there that's important. And they spoke, I think, on those terms later in the forum. And I thought that was really the best part of the discussion. But I want to start with how McMillan framed these issues. And he went first. And uh, it was one of those awkward moments, I think, at the beginning where nobody really wanted to go first. And so the uh, moderator asked McMillan to go first. I don't think McMillan, McMillan was trying to commandeer the conversation. It just worked out this way. But it was important because he came in not really with a message for the trustees, but with a an advocacy position that uh, the sky was falling, that all these horrible things were going to happen, and that the only real solution was congressional intervention. So he goes right down the talking points. So name, image, and likeness is bad news. We've got a Wild West market. There's no meaningful enforcement at the state level with these state nil laws. The NCAA is out of the game. So we really have this unregulated marketplace. And then he says this, and this is important because this is how he set the template for the name, image, and likeness issue. He said, we need a, quote, national more harmonic, end quote, approach. And he said that Congress can provide that. He doesn't explicitly say preemption, but that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about this uniform national standard where Congress is going to come in and eliminate any 
regulation in this in the nil space, whether it's state laws, whether it is the NCAA, whether it is these executive orders, and of course, whatever the institutional people are doing, where there aren't governing state laws or executive orders. So this is a federalization of the name, image, and likeness marketplace. And I talked quite a bit about that in my episode on the federal nil police. And I'm not going to go through all that, but there has to be an enforcement mechanism. And McMillan didn't really talk about how that would work from an enforcement standpoint. He says enforcement's the problem. The absence of enforcement is the problem. He doesn't say what that would look like at the federal level if this market is federalized. And then he goes on to talk about more the sky is falling stuff. There's going to be a stratification in this nil marketplace with clear winners. This is the same propaganda that we were hearing in 2020. And this was a pat talking line that, gosh, you're going to have all these big time athletes getting these ridiculous contracts and it's going to be just a huge problem, just an upheaval in the market. And then you're going to have the haves and the have nots and the have nots are going to be non-revenue athletes and female athletes. In, In the actual nil market that exists, both of those theories have been just demolished. They're just false narratives and they were all along. Then he throws in Title IX without any explanation. And of course, remember this whole name, image and likeness market by design and by the terms of the state laws can only exist between the athletes and third parties. So there's no university involvement, which means that Title IX doesn't even apply. So you have this perceived encroachment on that and you have universities getting more and more involved, but that's an institutional issue. That's a greed issue. That's these people seeing this no marketplace as a way to get an advantage in the talent acquisition market. But in theory, this market shouldn't involve the institutional interests. They should have no role in it. And so Title IX should have nothing to do with it. And then he goes into how, oh, these poor athletes are being taken advantage of and they're going to be stuck in these bad deals. Another talking point that is unsubstantiated. We don't know because we don't know what's happening with these deals. And the even state universities are refusing to disclose these deals. They're saying that they're student records are some ridiculous arguments. but So everybody's keeping their cards close to the vest. We don't really know what this marketplace looks like. We don't know what these contracts look like. We don't know if kids are being exploited or not. And I think that we should be looking at that, but we need market data. But that's not how Macmillan approached it. It's just, these are terrible deals, and this is a reason to shut down this nil market. Then, then, here's what Macmillan says. He invokes sports betting as a threat to the integrity of college sports And the way that he describes it is that a star quarterback might be susceptible to doing something untoward that could influence the betting lines or the outcome of a game. And that name, image, and likeness is somehow going to increase that susceptibility. And that is just a breathtaking justification for uh, congressional oversight and intervention in name image and likeness because lead one and the NCAA and the Mid-American Conference are in bed with sports gambling companies, some of the most powerful players in the sports gambling industry. So now sports gambling is an is a problem and that there's an increased risk of harmful consequences from sports betting because of the name, image, and likeness market. It's nonsensical. And it's not clear what exactly McMillan was trying to do here. It's my belief that he was floating this as a trial balloon because this could be a justification, a new justification 
for congressional re-engagement, if you can sell that ridiculous talking point and how you do that while you are behind the scenes, normalizing sports betting in college sports is beyond me. But on this susceptibility issue, that's another just silly argument because susceptibility to sports betting is as old as college sports itself, whether it is illegal as it has been for uh, most of the NCAA's existence or whether it's legal as it's been since, what was that, 2018, when the United States Supreme Court struck down the, the federal law that prohibited sports gambling, team gambling. After that, and I think we got 30 states now that have legalized gambling, so there are more people doing it without having to break the law, but I don't know if it's really changed the the overall activity. It's just been taken out of the black market and brought into the open. So the susceptibility has always been there. I don't think that these athletes are any more susceptible to sports gambling. I would say they may be less susceptible because if you're getting paid a bunch of money from these nil deals, you don't need to make them a money by fixing games. It just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And then let's see. So then Michael Shu jumps in and he, he, I think he was put in a position where he had to pull these Macmillan back to reality. And so he said, you know, then what's wrong with the nil market? It, you know, it's, it's operating. Let's let the free market principles apply. That the NCAA created this nil problem. And then he talks about, in terms of accountability and, and who should be responsible, he looks at that Emmert press conference on March 31st and the circular firing squad finger pointing. It's like all of these issues are the product of the NCAA's failure to self-regulate and the failure of the institutions to have some self-control. They're responsible for this at the institution level. And they can decide whether and to what extent they're involved in this nil marketplace and how they insinuate themselves or not into that space. They weren't supposed to be there in the first place. But again, in this unregulated market, you have these schools and Chu later identifies Ohio State as trying to bring a lot of their name, image, and likeness stuff in-house rather than farming it out to third parties, which does suggest that you have an encroachment on that separation and that the universities are involved. But why is that? It's not because of the athletes. It's not because of uh, athletes' rights advocates. It's because the institutions demand it because they think it's a pathway to increasing a competitive advantage in the town acquisition market. It's about getting an advantage, however you can get it. And that is the product of institutional greed and a lack of self-control. And then Ad Adams jumps in and he's retweeting McMillan. McMillan and Adams, they speak and then they retweet each other. Adam Adams brings up, he says that nil is a threat to that academic performance of these athletes and that we're going to see the APR, the academic progress rate, plummeting because of this. And I just don't even know how to respond to that. And then he talks about nil being an overwhelming burden for these athletes. And we have to worry about their mental health. And a lot of these talking points that, again, were floated at the very beginning of this debate, but have been uh, disproven. And that academic progress rate is a made-up, ridiculous metric that is designed to dumb down any meaningful graduation rate matrix. And it was invented out of whole cloth, and it's been roundly criticized as uh, nothing more than a way to cover up the fact that a lot of the revenue-producing athletes simply aren't getting the benefit of the bargain in, in the academic, educational experience that they've been promised and that this whole business model is based in large part upon. So Bob Bowlesby in that Aspen Institute forum, he just comes out 
and says it. And of all the things that Bowlesby said, and I was very hard on him in my episode on, on his comments there, but this was about the only thing he said where I said, thank God, somebody's saying this out loud. But here's what Bowlesby said. He says, but you know, that's another thing where I think we are somewhat inconsistent with our stated intentions. Graduation rates have gone up in football and men's basketball, but we also have a whole raft of things that we don't take into account. As an example, somebody who leaves early is exempted from the counting. And then Bowlesby says, I don't consider that a real graduation rate. I think we ought to talk about real graduates and who starts the first day and who graduates later on. That's really where the proof is in the pudding. But we have allowed ourselves to dumb down those statistics in ways that make it look like we're getting better when really they have improved to a certain level and then they have not gone any farther. And that's the truth. Both the GSR and the APR are just made up and while Adams is saying, oh, the NIL's going to just pull down the APR, the NCAA every year splashes on its website when those numbers come in, that it's, it's always going up and up and up. I, I would challenge Adams to find a year since the APR was invented where the NCAA has blasted on its website that the APR has dropped. I don't think it can. <laughs> I think it, it might be mathematically impossible for that to happen, but that's just a silly argument. But that's the kind of stuff we were getting. And Macmillan and Adams were reinforcing each other there. And then Macmillan re retweets Adams. I don't know. Is that accurate? He, and he says, this is a quote, the quote, fraying of uh, academic connection, end quote, because of nil is a real problem for him. And boy, we really need to watch those academic progress rate numbers. We're going to be all over that like flies on a rib roast. And then he also invokes the transfer market. And then he says, look, with all these things, nil and transfer, we're going to see nil and transfer dropouts. They, they get out of the market or they make mo too much money from nil that they don't feel like they have to go to school or they enter the transfer portal and then nobody wants them. And then they, they leave school again. So I, I guess theoretically that could happen, but don't we want some data on that? Let's see if that's occurring and whether market forces will resolve that more efficiently than draconian federal legislation. And then, and then Adams chimes back in and he says, well, gosh, maybe we need to put the Student Athletic Advisory Committee on this. Let's get some feedback from SAC. And I, you know, I'm going to talk about SAC as well. They're, they're on the list. But wow, I mean, this is just an NCAA Power 5 lead one echo chamber on talking points that are demonstrably false. And then Shu makes some great points here about the real problem. If you're looking at academic issues, the problem is the 50-hour work week that the, these coaches and these athletic directors insist upon and permit in the face of NCAA legislation that's supposed to limit the work week to 20 hours. It's a joke. Bob Bowlesby said that too. Nobody pays attention to it. And then Shu says that nil isn't mandatory and you can make passive income. You, you do a nil deal and you set it and forget it and then somebody else is managing it for you. And you don't really have to do anything. And then he also brings in something that's really important. And, and actually, Macmillan came around to this, which I thought was a good point for him to, to, to make. And that is that there's inherent educational value in launching your own business and the entrepreneurial aspects of the nil marketplace. And these students are getting a real-time, real-life education 
and how the world really works at the business level. I think that has enormous value. And then Adams comes back around, look, there's just too many problems with this nil marketplace. We have these bad deals. Oh, and tax consequences, the Richard Burr argument. <laughs> you know, the Richard Burr argument from that September 15th hearing in the Senate, September 15th, 2020, in health, education, labor, and pension. And he went on a little rant about, about that. And then McMillan comes back in, and he's just uh, retweeting Adams. Oh, this nil thing is going to be terrible. Sports betting, he brings up sports betting again. Oh, this is horrible. And they were going to have sports books on campus. Oh, no, perish the thought. Heaven forbid sports books on campus. They may as well be on campus. Hell, you already have ESPN on campus. You have Nike and Adidas and Under Armour on campus. You have Learfield Sports on campus. You have all of these corporate interests getting physical space on your campus. Well, why not have a couple of slot machines? Maybe we can put them in the bathrooms. So then he throws in Title IX again, and then he talks about point shaving, and then these proposition bets, which are on some arcane aspect of uh, performance in the game that don't really have anything to do with the outcome of the game. Like you could bet on how many points were going to be scored in the first 10 minutes, doing over-under on that or something silly like that, that theoretically a player could control. But I think that would be tough for them to, to control. Not necessarily the, the actual outcome of the game. And then he threw in Title IX again. And then he, he threw in international students. These international students in this nil market may run afoul of their education visas, which prohibit them from making money. Where the hell has uh, Tom McMillan and Lead One, the athletics directors, and the NCAA been on international students? That's an important thing to talk about, but they've said nothing about it. Yet McMillan in this kitchen sink attack on the nil marketplace, he just tosses that baby in. Then he brings it back around to displacement, the displacement boogeyman. And I'm going to do uh, separate episodes just on displacement because it is offensive on its face and it's just loaded with racial overtones. But now the boogeyman is that donors who would be giving their money to the universities are going to be putting that money into collectives to essentially recruit high-value football players, pretty much. That, that, that's the suggestion here. And again, that assumes a zero-sum marketplace in, in the finances of big-time college sports and that if donor A puts his money into a nil collective and doesn't give it to the university, then that's uh, somehow going to be uh, a permanent depletion of, of that uh, funding source. And then there, there are all kinds of issues there. But this is a boogeyman. And this displacement theory has worn many faces. And they all come down to one thing. And that is preserve the revenue streams, preserve the status quo, and delegitimize the true value of the football immense basketball players. But that litany of talking points was really where you looked at this forum and you just said, this is nothing more than a commercial for the lead one. One interest. That's how I interpreted that. And then Shu came around and made what I thought was an interesting observation. A lot of what McMillan and Adams were describing really was uh, paternalistic, and it was wrapped in this paternalistic benevolence, which the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries fall back on. And Shu said, wait a minute, you're invoking the in loco parentis arguments because back in the early 20th century, late 19th century, universities did act as the parents and assumed the responsibilities of that. We moved completely away from that in the 60s and 70s and recognized that college students 
are adults and they're free agents and the university doesn't have to be their parent. And that was an interesting way to put it. And I'm going to talk more about that too, because that is one of the hidden normative undercurrents in this whole business model that we can use that seemingly benevolent paternal instinct only for athletes. It doesn't apply to any other cohort of students, but these quote unquote kids, these athletes then get to be protected by their coach parents, their athletic director parents, their athletic administrator parents. And those parents are exploiting the ever living hell out of their children's labor. But no, everything we're doing here is for the benefit of these kids and we need to protect them from commercial exploitation. That was in the old iteration of amateurism, constitutional provision 2.9, the principle of amateurism. We need to protect these athletes from exploitation. That's the kind of tone that you get from uh, people like McMillan and these athletics directors. So let's see. Oh, this, and then we get into something that is important. And this goes to the regulation of college sports. And because uh, Shu invoked the transformation committee's work and the infractions and sending it down to the divisions rather than leaving it at the national level. And actually, McMillan says, said something that was very interesting on that point. And he said, look, it's not clear that's going to happen for all of infractions and enforcement and suggested that there was some behind the scenes wrangling, which I believe is true. And I talked about when I was talking about this Constitution Committee and the importance of infractions, because ultimately this whole shooting match at the regulatory level rests on what principles you're going to enforce and what you're not going to enforce. And that is where the rubber meets the road in the regulation, the voluntary regulation of college sports. And we don't know what that's going to look like because the Transformation Committee hasn't told us yet, but they have the authority now to do what they want to on infractions and enforcement. And when McMillan says, look, that may not be just a division one issue, that there may be other components of infractions and enforcement that the NCAA holds onto, that tells me there's a power struggle behind the scenes. And, and I, I've believed that to be the case from the very beginning of this constitutional makeover. But then McMillan gets into discussion about the, the evolution of the NCAA and this relationship between the national uh, organization and then something that's more decentralized, whether it's divisions, conferences, or individual schools. And the way that he was talking about this, he goes back to the 1920s and the, he made a reference to home rule, which existed before the 1950s. And basically, there really was very little national oversight and schools were left to their honor to adhere to whatever principles the national governing body put into place. There was no enforcement mechanism. That didn't happen until the 1950s with Walter Byers. And then he talks about the sanity code and, and he says this, and this was, I think, was really in response to Shu's observation about the, the the devolution down of responsibilities that is mandated by the new NCAA Constitution. That was the fundamental philosophical underpinning of the whole constitutional makeover. That is that these responsibilities shouldn't reside at the national level. They should reside at the divisional level or the conference level or the individual school level. McMillan was saying in this forum that's simply not the case and that we must, quote unquote, re-centralize. He said it's hard to run a national organization with a decentralization functions there. And he says the rich will get richer and all this needs to land in Congress. He's back to Congress, Congress, Congress. And he said, this could take years. I thought that answer goes back to the same uh, theme that the NCAA can simply change the narrative overnight and achieve spontaneous consent to painfully false shifts in position and dishonest shifts in position. So this whole constitutional makeover was premised upon sending all these national authorities down, 
with the the suggestion that those responsibilities should never have resided at the national level. And that was a fraud because in their campaign in the Senate in beginning in 2019, the NCAA and the Power Five were seeking congressional intervention to make the NCAA the sole and unchallengeable national regulator of college sports. That was the whole purpose of the federal protections and immunities to eliminate external regulators. And if the NCAA had gotten what they wanted from Congress in 2020 in a Republican-controlled Congress and they got preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees, there's no discussion about this Constitution Committee. It doesn't exist. And now that we have set these responsibilities down in a Power 5 power play, I talked about that in my episode on Power 5 Autonomy 2.0. That's what this is. This completes the takeover from the autonomy movement. And the Power 5 now are in complete control of their destiny under the NCAA umbrella where they get all the benefits of being under the NCAA umbrella. But what McMillan is saying is that when our next engagement with Congress, we need to re-centralize, that we, we need a strong, singular, national authority to govern college sports. We'll see. We'll see. But what McMillan is talking about here is a complete U-turn from what the Constitution Committee just did. And if they're going to go back to Congress now and say, wait a minute, we need these federal protections and immunities, that simply turns the clock back to the pre-Austin status quo, the pre-NIL status quo, the pre-transfer status quo, but with this Constitution that gives the Power Five complete authority and autonomy under the NCAA umbrella. And that may be where this is going. And maybe McMillan is saying out loud here what's really going on behind the scenes. And I don't know if people are looking at it this way and paying attention to the messaging that has come out on the voluntary regulation of college sports because it has been all over the map. And the common thread in all of that is the NCAA, the Power Five, and all their surrogates like Lead One trying to get Congress to buy into the fact that there has to be legislation, protective federal legislation, or the entire college sports industry as we know it will come to a fatal collapse. The same arguments. So a lot of this will reveal itself. And then they do get to some discussions about trustees and both Shu and McMillan agree that trustees are underinformed, that they need to be educated. I'm not sure that they would be saying the same things if they're trying to educate their boards of trustees. But I think the general point is that we have these governing boards and governing bodies that simply don't know enough about what's going on. Of course, on the flip side of that, you have situations like the University of South Carolina, where you had the board of trustees doing nothing but focusing on athletics and then doing some silly stuff that really was inconsistent with their governance responsibilities. But one of the, the other things I think that that comes out of that discussion, and it was an important discussion, is that you now have a, an environment with name, image, and likeness that has been sent down to the institutional level, and it was dumped on these institutions. And I think part of the problem in the way that institutions think about this type of issue is that they have been lulled into this learned helplessness through this national regulatory structure, and then the conference regulatory structure, that they don't really have to make decisions, because all those decisions are being made at the national level. And I think once they are, are dumped at the institution's feet, they need to really rethink 
their relationship to these issues, and they need to own these issues. I think that's what both Macmillan and Shu were saying, and I think that's an important message. But what's omitted from that is this learned helplessness that the NCAA is going to solve everything, and the the conference can solve everything. And they're in an environment right now with nil where that's not the case. So what is Macmillan's overarching solution to that? Well, we just get the federal government to put the NCAA back in charge. And so I think that, that really Macmillan was acting as an advocate here. And one of the things that's happening in the lobbying campaign is that instead of having the lobbyists doing the lobbying or having the NCAA and Mark Emmert do it, because that's been a, a train wreck, you're going to see direct lobbying from the uh, conference commissioners, from the Power Five university presidents. And if they can get powerful members of boards of trustees, these boards of trustees are loaded up with very powerful, influential people. And if they can get the lobbying campaign to run through all of those levers of power at the institutional level, the conference level, straight to senators from states that have power five schools, that's way more effective than paying a bunch of D.C. lobbyists. And I think it's a brilliant lobbying campaign. And the final analysis, what I heard from McMillan is that he's trying to increase the lobbying base and he's trying to condition these decision makers to see that federal intervention is the only pathway forward. And until we get that, you need to watch your back. You need to cover your ass because there's some things in this marketplace that could come back to bite you in the ass. And I think that's good advice. But this was a, a fascinating insight into how in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are thinking about the next phase. And this also dovetails with that Sankey interview, the Greg Sankey interview, remember Sankey is probably the most powerful person in college sports right now. And he is a co-chair of this transformation committee, which is driving the train on changes at the division one level. And his co-chair is Julie Cromer, who is the athletics director at uh, Ohio University. And she is on the board of directors of lead one. I saw that. And uh, so is uh, Stan Wilcox. He's an ex officio member. He's an NCAA executive. So you have the, all this incest and and you have people like Julie Cromer, who has her finger in all these pies right now. And I'll talk more about that as well when I talk about this transformation committee, what's going on there. But uh, Sankey's response to Feinbaum's questions, with, which went directly to what this transformation committee is doing and who the hell's in charge. Sankey was doing the NCAA two-step and Mark Emmert could have said what Sankey said. And I'm going to talk about that too and link together some of these themes. When you, It's starting to come together in my mind when, when I hear what Sankey has to say. I hear what Macmillan has to say. And then you look at what you can get from the public record on the lobbying activity. This is just another NCAA Power Five snow job. And they are putting one message out for public uh, appearances and then behind the scenes. They're doing what they always do, and that is protect their gravy trains. That's what this comes down to. This doesn't have a damn thing to do with athlete interests. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. And I want to thank you as always, for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.